Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Brian Hoskins. Uh, I'm one of my jobs as chair of the Grantham Institute at Imperial College, which is a sister of the Grantham Institute at LSE. And I'm also a professor of meteorology at the University of Reading and on the UK Climate Change Committee. And uh, I'm sort of retired as well, but it doesn't really show. But, um, so it's a pleasure to welcome you to this evening's uh, celebrations here of Lenny's talk. And this talk is going to be um, is part of the LSE work series. And this is to, um, to bring the achievements of LSE's academics to the attention of the audience, to the potential audiences, and give a clear insight, uh, measures of the insights that they've attained, and, and really tell them in a very accessible manner. I'm sure we're going to have one that, like that tonight. And the, the actual LSE centre involved here is the Centre for Analysis of Time Series. Now, I have to do a couple of things. One is to tell you the fire assembly point, which I gather is on the Aldwych outside or near the post office. You probably know that better than I do, so um, please leave me out. Um, the events are recorded, uh, and it's hoped that a podcast of the event will be made available online. But do... do don't let that stop you uh, giving free vent to your comments later on. And mobile phones, of course, should be silent. There is a Twitter hashtag this evening, and the hashtag LSCWorks, which will be displayed, I suspect, around here at some point. And um, so this evening, the, what we have then is a talk from Lenny Smith, and then we're going to have two respondents who will give some comments which may or may not be directly on, on Lenny's talk, but in the general area, and there's an open discussion after that, the Q&A, and we will finish proceedings about 8 o'clock. So now that um, comes to the, the point where of introducing Lenny Smith, which is my great pleasure to do. He's a professor of statistics here at LSE and director of the LSE Centre for Analysis of Time Series. He's also a senior research fellow uh, in mathematics at Pembroke College, Oxford. So he got his PhD from, in physics from Columbia University and has had a very distinguished career and received many awards, but in particular, I know from my area, the Royal Meteorological Society's Fitzroy Prize for his contribution to applied meteorology. And that sort of shows the slant of, areas of Lenny's research, where he is both an expert in non-dynamical systems and their predictability, but also thinking about the real-world challenges. And I've known him many years, and I, I've always found his comments extremely interesting, not necessarily very comfortable for those who produce the results or for those who use them, but all the more interesting because of that. And I'm sure tonight we'll hear many of those sorts of comments. So over to you, Lenny. Thanks, Brian. Thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, I'm not sure I take issue with anything except the, the balance between whether the discomfort is those who produce the information or with those who use it. But that's exactly the sort of lines that I want to be on tonight. I really want to talk about how we're making forecasts, the kind of things that forecasts are, and also how people use them. Okay? The one thing I need to say before I forget is that if you actually go to Slido, on your phone, if you want to ask questions anonymously, you can ask questions during the talk, and they will actually show up on my iPad. Uh, 
So please ask them live if you want. But if, you, you know, if we don't really have time, you know, I, will, I will respond to all the questions that are asked there. Great. So first of all, I'd just like to acknowledge the people at CATS uh, that made this possible. And of course, including uh, my students. There are, there, there, there are other people working in the LSE, and none of this would be possible without the people who actually run the big models and have actually developed methods of making these kinds of forecasts. But the public in general has a real fascination with forecasting. And these are the main characters we'll be talking about tonight. Uh, they range from potentially mythical ones right up to L.F. Richardson, who I'll give credit for almost all of real weather forecasting. One of the things I find most interesting about this public fascination with forecasting is, is how interested they are when it goes wrong. Now, I didn't actually plan to say anything about this forecast. What I want to point out is that this forecast has had half a million hits on YouTube. Right? And that was, 20 year, that was already 20 years after the forecast was made. So there's really some connection. Uh, and I think actually Tom Stoppard may well have gotten uh, a good part of the reason why. So it is the Ides of March. And that's my first forecast. Right? And you know, the, it, it's a forecast that's very specific in time, but it's fairly vague in intent. If you're a politician, there's a real cost of action. There's also a cost of inaction. And, you know, maybe the best we can aim for is not necessarily good decisions, but being happy with the process we went through in making the decision, given the information that's available. And arguably, this was a good decision, but it had a costly outcome. And that brings us to a recurrent theme here, which is, you know, when we know something is unusual or we've been warned about something, how much detail do we insist to have before we actually change the way we act? Now, a year after Caesar was murdered, Brutus uh, distributed this coin to mark the event. Uh, that coin I don't have, but I, I, I do have this one. This is a, this is a new two-pound coin. And I'd like to move on, not quite to Shakespeare, uh, but to Rosencrantz and Gilderstoner dead, which is actually playing right now at the Old Vic. You may recognize this guy without the beard. Uh, and at the beginning of this play, they flipped 92 consecutive heads. Now, this is more of an observation than a forecast, but it's exceptionally, well, it's vague, but it's very worrying. And they worry about one of them. I can't remember which one, uh, but neither can they. Worries about which one it is. And so they don't make a decision. They just follow the script, and it has an unfortunate ending. But again, that, unless we have context, unless we know what the observations or what the forecast is actually telling us, we're really not going to get enough information to act, even if we're forewarned that something is unwell. Now, in both those cases, the forecasts were too vague. But if you look back, it's actually possible they can be too precise as well. So the, the, the weird sisters forecast quite accurately that Macbeth is going to become king, that he doesn't have to worry until Burham Wood comes to his castle, and that no man of woman born is going to hurt him. So these are exceptionally precise. And this is exactly another problem we have in scientific forecasting. They're precise, but they're subtly incomplete. Right? The forecasts themselves actually lead to a lot of action. They, ca they cause. The forecaster becomes caught up in the whole process. The forecast really isn't understood by the client, and again, one would argue that there's suboptimal decision-making in this case, too. At least for Macbeth, Banquo, although he's already dead here, he actually he seems to have a, a much better way of handling the forecasts. So I want to go out a little bit more and come back to, to Europe. Uh, 
in the 1860s, Fitzroy was head of the, what became the Met Office. Leverrier, who's famous for a number of things, was in France thinking about meteorology there. They were basically working with a new, a new technology called the telegraph. Fitzroy distributed barometers all around the British coast, and they would telegraph in their observations. This is actually one of them. The Royal National Lifeboat Institute still runs several of the Fitzroy barometers at their lifeboat houses now. Uh, and he would process these and try to send out information in the newspaper. So this was quite difficult in the sense that the forecast had to be written in a very general way. For instance, he says explicitly, the barometer is falling. There's going to be a giant, it looks like there's going to be a major storm. But if there was a major storm this morning or last night when you're reading this newspaper, that was it, right? Don't expect another one. I mean, this is in the guidance that he gives. And that, that, level, of in, in, that level of communication, of actually engaging with what the fishermen mostly using those forecasts were for, is very important. He actually coined the word weather forecast for forecast to make them different from those in the first three examples. But it didn't go well. He immediately ran into political interference from the Royal Society. Uh, in particular from Galton, although Galton didn't actually sign this letter that he wrote criticizing Fitzroy's work. This last sentence sort of sums it up. It's perfectly fair ground for doubting whether much of Admiral Fitzroy's weather wisdom rests on any better foundation than, than can be claimed for the popular belief in the efficacy of the moon in causing weather. Okay. So there was a, a surprisingly sharp disconnect between some sections of the establishment in Fitzroy giving information that was really deeply embraced by the users of that information. Part of this reason was that Galton was Darwin's cousin, and there was a lot of other things going on in the background between Fitzroy and Darwin, and that this is thought to perhaps have motivated some of Galton's actions. But that still happens today, not quite on the personal level, but certainly on the institutional level. But Galton did a lot of other things that are extraordinarily important in terms of forecasting, one of the things he came up with and built, this one you can still see in UCL, is the Galton board. So the idea behind the Galton board is you drop a pellet through this funnel, and at each level it makes a 50-50 choice one way or the other, and it ends up forming a nice normal distribution. Right? It was called Gaussian, but apparently at the time... German names weren't popular. So Galton also introduced the idea of calling this a normal distribution uh, in part for that reason. So this, this is a very beautiful mathematical result you can actually prove as you go down here. He, he had a number of others that apparently illustrated other theorems, but Henry Stigler, uh, a historian of statistics, thinks that this one was actually never built, although the experiments are described in, in some detail. There's also a complaint that Stigler makes that if you try to build, he's tried to build one of these at Chicago, it's very hard to get it to work appropriately. And that's the other big distinction I want to make tonight, right? Only a theorist would say that the experiment isn't working appropriately, right? The physicist is thinking that perhaps the theory, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting catch. Also, I think these probably work better if you pour the shot. The reason there's a funnel, you actually pour a lot of shot here all at once. And then this idea of 50-50 chances is a little bit more like a fluids flow problem than a, than, a, <coughs> than a golf ball. So I was really interested in this difference between theory and, and experiment. Um, this is just showing us how the thing goes through, the distribution we get. And so for the 150th birthday party of the Royal Metsoc, Tim Palmer had a tent 
with interesting things, and I built this nag board. This is not a Galton board, right? So if you see, there's a little white nail here at the top, and you can take golf balls, place them in exactly the same initial condition, and let them go, and they make a much nicer sound than that as they go through this machine. So the idea then is, if we were trying to make a forecast, and we wanted to know where do the golf balls go that's going to start exactly underneath this nail, well, then you could actually do an ensemble of golf balls. So I'm going to use this word ensemble a lot. Right? It just means a collection. Statisticians would often say Monte Carlo. Right? But <coughs> the ensemble gives us a good idea of the uncertainty inside our model. It tells us a lot about the next golf ball. And I know a lot about these golf balls. I've dropped 1,024 golf balls from exactly the same initial condition uh, under that pin. The question is, what does a golf ball tell us about reality? You know, reality isn't a golf ball. Reality is a red rubber ball, which is much like a golf ball, right? But not quite the Oh, no, it's not. Reality is a red wooden ball. So, in fact, I, I, lost, I lost reality about a year and a half ago. I'm still looking for the right red rubber ball. But sometimes reality is a clear ball with, with a triceratops inside, right? Reality is different from day to day, but each drop only happens once. Now, I've got 1,024 drops through my board here. What does that actually tell us about the one and only time that the red wooden ball falls through the nag board? And we can do this in a weather-like sense. You know, we drop it here on the 15th and here on the 16th and here on the 17th. We can do our ensembles the same way. In this weather-like case, we can actually draw a relationship between the distributions that are coming out and the one time we get each of those realities. And one of the things that I've tried very, very hard to do was to find a way of mapping those distributions into the probability of the one event that comes out, and I haven't been able to do it. I can get a lot of information out of these distributions, but with weather forecasts, with the Galton board, with fluid dynamics experiments in Oxford, I can get a much better informed by using those ensembles, and if you let me bet against you, and you're using ensembles to make your probability distributions, I will drive you bust. All I need to know is that your model isn't perfect, and you already know that, so we even have the same information. Now, I'm going to come back to climate at the end, but climate forecasting is harder still. At least as we're moving along in weather forecasting, we're seeing similar sorts of things. Right? In climate forecasting, we're forecasting where we know that the ball is going to change. It might be, for instance, a little rubber duck. Now, again, the golf balls tell us a lot about the kinds of things a rubber duck can happen in the nag board. I once actually tried to illustrate that, and the duck got stuck. But except for those really weird things, right? We can still get a lot of information. We know what to be afraid of, but we're starting to moving back closer and closer to those earlier examples of not having enough information to make the sort of easy decision maker's solution to, the, to decision making. And I'd argue that no presentation of model-based probabilities is complete unless we have some expression of model irrelevance, what I'd call the probability of a big surprise. But you'll see in an example later, it's a purple light. Right? We get, you know, if, if, if somehow the model, you need to basically say, what's the chance that the model is just wrong today? And you need to say that every time you try to provide probabilities. And if that's one in a billion, I don't really care, right? The chance that I 
that the Earth gets hit by an asteroid must be that high. But if it's one in a hundred, and I run an insurance company, that, that actually has an immediate impact on my regulator. Insurance company. So, so this is Hurricane Sandy. Uh, this is Florida. Florida's here. This is my own salt marsh home here. Uh, and most of, my, most of my gene pool is still living there. So this is an earlier picture. Sandy's to the south. It goes up and goes past. So the sort of question was, you know, was my extended family safer at the time of this image when the hurricane is north of Jacksonville? And every Floridian who's lived there for more than a little while would say yes. But why do we know that so quickly, right? I mean, it's sort of really, there are lots of good physical reasons and arguments. Hurricanes don't go up, turn around, and come back down until one does. But but they don't. And we, you know, how do we actually really structure our, our, our faith in these hurricanes? Well, one of the things we do is we build large models. And in these models, we have what are effectively golf balls. So these are forecasts from the 22nd of October, looking at where Sandy was going to go. These are from the European Center, and this is from the American Center. And you can see that these golf balls are spreading out. In the, in the European Center, some of them even hook over. In the American Center, they're all going back out to sea. But these are just golf balls. How do we relate that to what the hurricane is actually going to do? Well, we just usually wait and see what happened and then go back and either get a bigger computer or find out that we could have done it, but we had too small an ensemble. Uh, here's another day later. The European Center is now clearly starting to move back over. All these golf balls are heading back into the States, and the American Center still hasn't decided. So that's really the problem that I want to illustrate in several different contexts. Right? We'll come up with jellyfish soon. Right? But should we be trying to turn this into a probability distribution of hitting New York? Or should we try to say, hey, look, can this hurricane hit New York? Can we take our model and actually look for the things that we're afraid of? Right? And that, yeah. So let me go a little bit more into these limits for ensembles. A, a simpler example perchance. I mean, suppose you really wanted to understand chaos better. So obviously you could read my book. But what would you do after you read my book? Right? Well, you could read an ensemble of books. <laughs> and no doubt, you would learn more. But you know, some ensembles are more informative than others. So you could read this ensemble of books, which are translations of my book into a wide variety of languages. Now, there actually is information that I have no clue about in some of these that's been pointed out to me. <laughs> uh, so you would get a wider view. Or you could, build, you could look at all of the top six books, seven books, on a popular search engine's hit list for chaos a night or two ago. Right? And you know, some of these uh, are going to be more informative than others, but it isn't always easy to tell which. More important than that, anything we didn't know. The last book here was, was published in 2015. Anything we didn't know in 2015 that we've learned since then, or that we still haven't learned, it's not going to be in any of these books. So all of these books, in a really important sense, are going to be incomplete, unless we believe that the mathematics of chaos is, is completely finished and settled. <clears throat> so what do people do when they run into this problem? Right? How do people handle this, this divergence between reality and our models? And, I, and this is a place where I find a huge difference in different fields of research. So I was, I was at a conference, just a statistics conference, on uncertain, quantifying uncertainty, and there were people there doing nuclear stewardship about eight years ago. And people doing nucle nuclear stewardship is, in America, we have a large number of nuclear, tell me if I get this wrong, 
of, of nuclear weapons. And it's very, very important that they don't go off when we don't want them to go off. And to some people, it's very, very important that they do go off if we do want them to go off. And so how do we handle this fact that we haven't been able to test since 1990-something? So the people that are tasked with this problem are working very hard to understand model inadequacy, this break between models of the world and the world itself, when you can't go do the thing that would give you a very straight-up answer. Uh, and I ask a naive question, which was, okay, look, this is, this is it's not just about nuclear stewardship. If you just drop a ball off of a tower, we're not going to be problems in estimating how long it takes to hit the ground. And four years later, David Higdon <coughs> invited me to come talk about dropping balls off towers, and we we're going to actually do this experiment. I thought that was great, so I agreed. What I hadn't realized is that they actually dropped it from here, and it goes down a thousand-foot shaft, which is located in area one. So these little orange dots are previous nuclear tests that the United States did before the ban. And there were, they drilled a few holes to, you know, to be ready to go for more, and then they had a test ban. So this is one of those. And now there's a rabbit warren of, of experimental stations down here at the bottom. We dropped two bowling balls, three basketballs, two golf balls, three wiffle balls. I couldn't get my rubber duck clearance. Uh, they have laser light detectors here at the bottom. It was really a remarkable experiment. And this is us in our village people picture before they actually took the data. Now, they still haven't released the data. Uh, and it actually took them almost a year to release this photograph. So for some reason, they're, they're very careful about the, the kinds of information that they let out. But they have let out some information that, that lets me know what I want to know. So I'll ask you this question. So in, in, my, in my classes, I sometimes use little clickers. You can just think to yourself. We're trying to estimate the time it takes a basketball, initially of zero velocity, to fall 1,000 feet. The timing is laser sheet lightning. It's extremely accurate. We're dropping a couple of basketballs. In terms of the mean estimate of the time it takes the basketball to fall, how accurate do you think we were? So what they did was they got six or seven uh, assorted people worried about model inadequacy and modeling. We spent two days in Las Vegas doing calculations and trying to figure out what are going to be the hard part. We thought surface roughness was really going to be tricky. Uh, that's why they put in the wiffle balls. How accurate do you think our estimates were? So you've already formed an estimate. So this is what a typical class says. They don't think we were super accurate. This was my student who was in the audience and shouldn't have actually pushed the button. Uh, but you know, most people think we could do within a minute. We still don't have the detailed data, but what we do have is pretty good enough. The bowling ball was completely destroyed. Right? So this is actually the sand pit. Was actually, I don't know, well, that's okay. One of the basketballs failed to make it to the bottom. That's a big surprise. In fact, we were off by hours of our average fall time. Right? A miner found it. Someone rappelled down the thing and found it embedded in the wall. I don't, so they haven't given us more details than that. So a big surprise is when something that's not in your model turns out to be really important. Surface roughness really wasn't nearly as important as the amount of time that we spent on it. And sometimes someone like Brian can actually estimate the probability of a big surprise. But you can't do it inside the model. The whole point is you're trying to see 
What is it that could be important that isn't in your model? Now, this kind of mind shaft gap is fairly common. I mean, we, when we teach physics, this is Leverrier again as a younger man, when he predicted the existence of Neptune. As a slightly older man, he predicted the existence of Vulcan to explain problems in Mercury's orbit. I learned about Neptune in high school physics, and I didn't learn about Vulcan until much later. That's because Vulcan doesn't exist. So the same guy, using the same methods, makes a very, very excellent prediction, and what could be a very instructive, not, well, something that turns out to be wrong. Both were discovered. He got the Medal of Honor. He already had the Medal of Honor. The, the observer got the Medal of Honor. He got some other honor. Right? People believed in this planet at the time, and yet we don't tend to teach about how physics goes wrong this way. And they're really good. This is Stephen Smale. I don't have time to talk about the details. And Ed Lorenz. They're really good mathematical and physical reasons to believe that our simulations can't actually give us that kind of detailed probabilistic outcome if we're dealing with really complicated nonlinear dynamical systems. If we collect all the time someone says there's about a 30% chance of something happening, the relative frequency of those events is so far from 30% that statistics just tells us this is not working. And, and sometimes they're horribly far. So that means we have a question. You know, jellyfish are a huge challenge. Jellyfish shut down nuclear reactors. Right? Algae can even shut down nuclear reactors, but they more or less get stuck in the intake vents. Unlike manatee, which are very smart, and they go to the nice warm water that's flowing out of the output vents. Right? So how should we handle this problem? This is, this is a, a group that I'm working with in Equipotential, but others are working on it too. You know, should we try to simulate the ocean to get formation of these blooms and then simulate transport? Jellyfish don't, they pretty much float, unlike manatees, which swim, but they, they respond to surface currents and they go deep. They do weird stuff. It's a very difficult problem. Or you know, should we just look for, where, for conditions in which we're likely to have a bloom and then ask, if there was a bloom here or there, could we actually get to a nuclear power station or a, a coal-fired power station, a grill? Are we vulnerable? Can we stop trying to say, what is the probability of a jellyfish, more than 152 jellyfish getting to this place? Can we say instead, this is the particular question I'm interested in. Right? Can I actually inform that question? It's not a forecast anymore. So let me show you an idea of something we tried to do in this way. Suppose I come into work <clears throat> on, well, today. And I'm interested in forecasting something, ice cream sales, electricity demand, something that depends on weather, but more than just weather, for the 24th of March. So I can look at, for the forecast. It turns out the forecast says it's going to be 14 degrees. Uh, this isn't a Met Office forecast. The Met Office forecast says chaos stops us from going this far on, the, on their website, although I have seen forecast. I don't know quite how that works. Uh, in any event, I come in and I see it's 14 degrees. Do I need to worry? So this is a basic question. Right? Whether it plays a role, in, a role in what I'm doing, but it's just a role. There are many other things. I don't have much time. Knowing that I don't have to worry about the weather next week is a win for me. Maybe you know, Knowing that I do, if it's true, is also a win. I know how to develop my time in making decisions. And this is the kind of thing we look at. This is, a, this is an old version, but imagine I come in here today. These are forecasts going out for eight days, nine days. This little bar, this is sort of an acceptable threshold. As long as the weather doesn't move far outside that bar, I don't care. You know, I hand that off to somebody else doing the daily variations. 
So I have to agree on what this range is. And then I have different lights. The light is red if, in fact, I, I for some reason, the LSE product, expects it to be hotter than this range. It's blue if I expect it to be colder. It's yellow if, for this lead time, this is a particularly weird forecast. Wide, not weird. Weird is purple. Purple just doesn't make any sense. Something is wrong. Look away now. Right? This only came on once or twice. Almost certainly it was due to typos. Like there was a 21 degrees, which should have read 12. But it spotted them before they go into some machine that processes everything and tells you to do something that you will later regret. This is what really happened. So we didn't do too bad, right? I mean, I wouldn't have chosen this slide. Uh, it, you know, it's sort of, it was hotter on these days, not on this day, not on that day. But there's two things that have to be chosen. How much can this change, and what is the probability of missing it? So if I had a probability forecast, I could answer that every single day. For any threshold, for any range, I can't do that. The models aren't good enough to do that, but I can do it for this threshold and this range. And sometimes I don't always say it's hotter, sometimes it's colder. Uh, sometimes I say, don't worry about the weather today. And this is sort of, we didn't expect, this is an uncertainty storm. <laughs> and if you look, this is running through 2005. At some point, you'll actually see an uncertainty storm of yellow. Here it is. Right? So that's something the models just don't, the models just are really wide for the temperature on Heathrow. And that way, we actually get an idea of how to act today based on the weather. Now, again, if we had probabilities, we could answer any questions like this. The point here is we can only do it when the ranges are roughly right and when the ratio that you want to get hits is roughly right, which means that we don't actually have access to a real probability distribution. We can do even more than that. Right now, we're still making these Monte Carlo ensembles by picking some special directions in a 10 to the 7 dimensional space and running 50-ish, 100-ish, 16 initial conditions, golf balls, in this huge high dimensional space. And we try to pick the direction after something that Ed wrote about so they actually sample the rapidly growing modes on the idea that these may be the most dangerous ideas. So the idea behind glimpse, which Ed is working on, Ed, and we'll answer all your questions, uh, is we actually look for the thing we're worried about. We have a low pressure system in the middle of the next week or the week after. Can we actually turn that? Can the model make that a storm that looks like that low pressure system? We're worried about warming in the North Sea. Can we actually get something that could be a bloom? And if we did, could we get currents, which would take us to a vulnerable water intake? We're no longer trying to say, what is the probability of everything? We're more or less saying, hey, look, this is a plausible outcome, the end of next week. And for the next few days for that to happen, these precursors have to happen in model land. But that kind of outcome can give us a lot of information as long as we know the specific questions we're trying to ask. The St. Jude storm, which I don't have time to show you, it was heavily in the ensemble 15 days before it happened. I think the entire ensemble had big storms 10 days, 9 days ahead. Not all in the right place, but the idea there was going to be a big storm was clearly available from the model forecast, and we weren't even looking. If we were designing infrastructure, not so that they had to survive giant storms in 2060 while they were operating, but where we could actually see giant storms coming early enough to turn them off, 
We could potentially build cheaper infrastructure and have redundancy in the system. And that's a completely different question than trying to ask what the weather is going to be like in 2060, especially if you're concerned with the worst case scenario. And this comes back to Gildenstern's first statement. The scientific approach to the examination of phenomena is a defense against pure emotion of fear. This is actually sort of moving in, in just that direction, right? We're, we're trying to use our models to tell us as much as they can about the future, especially the things that we're concerned about. So how many people recognize this cave? No. Not even Dave. How about now? <laughs> yeah. This is a rabbit. Now, forecasts, insight, scientific evidence, it's not always taken seriously. Sometimes you find politicians or clients or users. It's only in this case I want to really call them users, but okay, who, who, who don't really pay attention to the evidence or the insight that the forecaster has. So the forecaster is basically saying, you know, he's seen this rabbit in action. The rabbit is dynamite. And if you don't believe that, just look at the bones. And here, no one's wearing their armor. And in the next shot, of course, everyone's wearing their armor and something horrible has happened. And the policymaker basically just tells him, you know, he says, I always tell them, it's always the same. And the policymaker just says, shut up. Or go do something else for four years. So how do we get around this kind? How do we interact with this kind of thing? This is something else we have to do if we want our LSE works. Now, the, the EPA chief last week more or less said he doesn't believe carbon dioxide emissions are to blame. He actually was phrased it a little more carefully than that. And, and the, his colleague at home, before he became EPA chief, has this nice report on 400 scientists who dispute that climate change exists. As it happens, I'm on this list. Right? And this worried me for a while, and I think a lot of young scientists worry about it a lot. Seven have told me so. Until I learned that, that Hans von Storch, who I admire a great deal, is also, well, I, I used to say a false positive on this list. But I look, I mean, the, the report is very careful about saying what I said. I, we need to drop the pretense that they are nearly perfect. And as it happens, the IPCC also referenced me for the same point <laughs> based on the same work. Right? So I guess, in some sense, maybe getting into both of these reports is a good thing. Right? It's certainly if you're trying to inform and not actually motivate. But there are people who I think rightly worry that this could actually have an impact on, on your future as an academic, unless you're old enough not to have a future anymore. But there's more. We can do a lot more. So I'm from Florida. You know, two Florida Republicans, these two guys, uh, actually disputed this. Now, every year, the AAAS has a Climate Science Day where about 100 of us go to Capitol Hill and talk to people from our states. And we actually talked to both of them in the last two years, and I'm hoping next week to actually talk to them again. The whole idea is you have to have an ask when you go to Capitol Hill. And our ask is if you have any questions about climate change, will you get in touch with us? Right? Uh, I'm batting about three for 120 visits. But the three were all pretty good, and now that their necks are out, right, that they've actually taken a stand... I mean, I would hope that we actually can find ways to use our networks to give them the kind of information they need or want, to the extent that we can, to actually push the debate, the discussion, or whatever it is this year, forward.
So, jellyfish, superstorms, and nuclear stewardship. You know, <clears throat> what can we really offer? So again, I, this, is, this is again, uh, actually, the, the, the head witch, Hecate, uh, saying, and you all know security is mortal's greatest enemy. <laughs> right? And yet, very often, that's really what the greatest pull is for when we're trying to make these kinds of forecasts. In the 90s, there was huge resistance, even within the meteorological community, to, to, to using ensembles and trying to make probability forecasts for next week. Right? We would teach classes with you know, a few hundred rural meteorological organization forecasters, and actually Mike Harrison told me that a third of them would understand within 15 or 20 seconds. Right? The second third would understand by the end of the day, and the last third, they just didn't want to know. They became meteorologists to say what the weather was going to be, not to give a probability distribution. And so there's, there's a sense in which that's, we, we've sort of overcome that in weather. At least, I'm not sure we can give a probability distribution, but at least the idea of giving information on distributions of what will happen next week is now fairly common. And you can get it, uh, the Dutch had it on, on their weather forecasts for a while. I don't know what actually happened to that eventually. So we can offer a lot more than Guildensterns. A lot more than just feeling uncomfortable at several hundred, at a hundred and something heads in a row. We can't really give the detail of Macbeth's witches, even if we wanted to. We can't give that sort of detailed precision, but we can certainly give information that's very informative, and in the weather cases, quantitatively informative. We just need to figure out a better way to present it once we embrace the fact that our models aren't perfect. Sometimes, I think really the closest parallel is a quantitative version of the Holy Grail, Monty Python's Holy Grail. We don't know the path of destruction the rabbit is going to follow, but we know enough to be sure we don't want to go there, or we want to invoke a different kind of solution. And at CATS, you know, we try to really stay in the science to inform side, which is sometimes really hard. I mean, it, it, some things become more and more obvious in, that according to our personal risk tolerances, we would rather, the, 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 the decisions we would make if we were decision makers are very clear, but the whole point is that we're not. Right? And so by informing those decisions with the best available science, without actually trying to use science to motivate, which appears in many, many different ways, right, we actually try to speak to all sides even those who, who sort of reject models in all cases out of hand. The other thing we do is we try to stay close to the actual question. This is a huge incentives problem in academia, even with impact. Right? When I'm doing a project that doesn't have to be on forecasting, with an industry, with an industrial partner, or with my, I'm doing it with a group, right? then at some point there almost always comes a case where I can make an assumption which allows me to do a piece of mathematics and publish a paper. If I don't make that assumption, I can't publish a paper. Right? My postdocs are told they have to publish papers, and I'm afraid it's probably true. But if I make that assumption, the result is now completely irrelevant for the user, of the, the person who funded the project. So at least I would like to let them know as early as possible that we're making this assumption for incentive reasons, but it means that the results aren't going to be very useful to you. I think usually that would, I'm not sure how they would respond. Right? The key thing then is to stay close to the actual question. That means I'm probably not going to be able to write the same kind of paper, and it probably means 
well, maybe I need to target concerns rather than probabilities. Maybe I can't actually get this entire distribution that I'd like to get, but I can really give you an idea of whether or not you want to consider doing low-cost actions, which gets you ready for a jellyfish bloom or a superstorm. And what to look for between now and next week to see if that probability actually goes up, even if I don't know quantitatively what it is. So our basic idea is just simple. It's this last one. It's really to extract all the information we can from our models, to change the way we use our models, to change the configuration of multi-models and everything else in order to milk all the information that's there to get out, but not try to get more than we actually can. And that's how LSE works at the CATS. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much, Lenny. I'm sure many people have been either writing their questions already or storing them up. But now we have two excellent respondents who are going to come up one by one. So the first one is Trevor Maynard, who's Head of Information at Lloyd's, responsible for horizon scanning for emerging risks and supporting an active culture of innovation. He's actually recently got his a PhD from LSE, in statistics and degree, and has degrees in pure maths. So I ask Trevor to come up here now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lenny, for a fascinating and stimulating talk. Um, so yes, I'm um, currently Head of Innovation at Lloyds of London, but for many years I was responsible for monitoring risk aggregations in the Lloyds market. Um, this means I'm interested in hurricanes and earthquakes, terrorism, aviation disasters, satellite failures. Um, any disaster you can think of, in fact, was very interesting to us. Um, questions like, what is the loss that Lloyds would face um, from a hurricane that has a probability of 1 in 200? Um, this is embedded, in fact, in our insurance regulation. It's a probabilistic regulatory framework that has led to uh, a great dialogue between science engineers, mathematicians, and insurers. Katrina, um, the hurricane that hit New Orleans in 2005, Lloyd's alone paid $4 billion uh, uh, to the Americans to help recover from that disaster. So this is a pressing and interesting problem to us. We're there, in fact, to um, provide support in these disasters, and we need to make sure that we are available to pay the claims when they arise. Oops. We, mustn't, uh, we mustn't go bust uh, before we're needed. So clearly, if we can use forecasts to, better, to get a better handle on our loss potential, and we could price our risk better, and we can also ensure that our financial assets are either not held unnecessarily, maybe we can re release some capital and use it for better purposes, or maybe we need to make sure it's not too low to withstand that disaster in a bad year. So for this reason, we worked uh, on a report with the Met Office in 2011, which we called the value of forecasting. And this was a really interesting uh, study. Um, we organized a roundtable discussion with uh, meteorologists, uh, scientists, other scientists, uh, market practitioners, and catastrophe model uh, providers. Um, and Lenny, I think you were amongst the group, and, and uh, you certainly, as you have this evening, made us think very deeply about what appeared to me initially to be a fairly obvious question. Are, are, are hurricane forecasts useful? Well, obviously they will be, I thought. 
And uh, the conclusions were surprising and interesting. If anyone is interested, by the way, um, Lloyds.com slash Emerging Risks, all of our reports, you can, you can see that one. This one's called Value of Forecasting. So one thing that was really interesting to me was the practitioner debate. So the practitioners are, the, are people like the exposure managers or the underwriters in the market. And, they, and their view was, um, well, yeah, forecasts, it's really difficult to justify using a forecast if other people aren't. So if, in fact, one of them called it their sore thumb principle. It's better to fail together than to be the one that tries something new and stands out. And this was really fascinating to me because it was a really strong behavioral effect. This wasn't a trite statement by people. They were not going to use these forecasts because the first person to do it, who unfortunately gets hit with the hurricane in the year that it says there wouldn't be many, well, they're the idiots. Everyone else is happily sitting there saying we didn't do it. And the risk to them personally recommending that would just be simply too high. So there are really strong behavioral effects here in terms of making decisions with forecasts um, that we have to get over if we're going to see people use them more sensibly. So I was personally convinced, nevertheless, that good forecasts would be, um, of hurricane risk should be useful. And so I built a very simple model, statistical model, um, of, 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 the, of the hurricane process. And then, having built this model, which was a sort of computer model, I could pr pr produce different forecasts in that model and see whether an insurer could use them. So I tried different pricing strategies um, in, the, in the presence of these perfect forecasts. So the number of hurricanes in the basin, the number of land falling, the size of the hurricane season, and all of these things, um, in fact, are forecasts that are beyond the current capabilities of hurricane forecasts. Yet even then... Um, I was very disappointed and, and surprised to find that none of them really were any use. And what it turned out was that there was, I realized finally, was that there was this deep uncertainty remaining, that the forecasts were only capturing a small part of the risk we face. And the true risk was, will a hurricane hit a major city or not? And that was really the only question that mattered. And then will it be a large category storm or won't it? And no forecast has the capability at this stage to give you that information. So I was sort of, I just assumed that surely if there's a bit of information in the forecast, we could use it. And it turned out, at least from my work so far, that I just can't see any way to extract decision-relevant information out of that. Um, and in fact, when we, when in, in the model, when, when we did use the forecasts, insolvency became more likely rather than less likely. So you might be thinking, well, do forecasts have any use at all to insure us then? And I think the answer is possibly, um, which is a very strong and positive statement. So insurers do use conditioning factors all the time. Um, we adjust prices according to useful information. Um, and I think providing the conditions of deep uncertainty aren't present, and they aren't always, um, then the for forecast can be assimilated into our process. Um, so, for example, if you're insuring a Porsche driver it's really good to know whether they're 18 or 50. You know, that's really useful, interesting information for us. So there needs to be a clear link between the observation that's forecasted and the eventual insurance claim. And that was what was missing in the hurricane example, was the forecast simply wasn't forecasting something that was relevant. Now, we can tell whether forecasts might be useful if they have high skill. doesn't mean they will be, but that's a good start. And we can use skill metrics to help us choose parameters in our models. 
And I've looked at this a little bit, and I've found that, in fact, you can get decision-relevant information if you use a good skill score. So skill scores could be very important to the insurance industry, and uh, the problem there is that there are loads of them out there. Statisticians use lots of different forecasts, root mean squared, continuous rank probability, all of these different exotic and exciting names. Some of them are really bad. Um, There are key properties that some of them have to have, propriety, locality, feasibility, and um, the ones that don't are generally pretty poor. So... Just to show how interested the insurance industry is in this, um, the Lighthill Risk Network, which is something I'm involved in, and Dickie Whitaker in the audience there is the CEO, we are funding a project with Lenny called EPSIS, which is going to be looking at finding the best skill scores and trying to debunk the rubbish ones. So there's a lot of interest. Now, you talked about in your talk, Lenny, things about decisions and how to use forecasts to make good decisions. Um, key points to get over, decisions get made in business. You know, if, if, and one of the things I've always said amongst scientists is, please do tell us your views, because somebody is going to make a decision anyway. Do we take project A or B? Do we underwrite a satellite launch or not? Do we provide country A with terrorism cover or don't we? So if we can make better decisions, then that's a good thing. And I do mean better and not perfect. So I think I agree entirely with Lenny that focusing on decision-making and methods, tools, or approaches to to guide decision-making under uncertainty are worthwhile. Um, And we need to be careful, however, with the choice of summary variables. When we're using probabilistic forecast, there's a tendency to try and boil them down to a single metric. Businesses um, struggle to incorporate probabilistic information, and they often try to collapse this into single measures, which is very dangerous, and we need care. Um, I think a question you asked was, does the decision maker want to hide from model inadequacy? And I I answer that by thinking it depends on the decision maker. Um, If models are being used to justify decisions as an excuse, if you like, for the decision, then hiding uncertainty is usually preferred, I suspect. And these are another example of really important behavioural effects that we all need to be aware of. Another point I want to say is models are good, um, there's, a, there's a whole queue of people ready to model bash, um, and they're, they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They want to return to nice, simple, single measures because they feel a sense of control over those measures. But the fact is the measures don't generally capture the risk very well. That's why we invented the models in the first place. So we need to, whilst pointing out the flaws and limitations of models, we need to still defend them because there's, there's, the, you know, there's the crowd out there that want to kill the whole thing. Um, and on Hurricane Sandy, which um, Lenny talked about as well, I think, uh, for me, there's a great example there. Two days out, or it might have even been one day out, um, when I had my responsibility for aggregation management at Lloyd's, I was always asked internally, is this the one? Is this going to be the big one, you know, do, do we need to prepare? Do, what are the press? We, I would be gearing up to talk to the rating agencies, the regulators. We would ring the US. You know, it was a big deal. Is this going to be the big one? And one day out, the forecast was from one of the modelling firms, well, we think the loss is somewhere between naught and $30 billion. <laughs> And a, a lot of people in the industry would, would have said, well, that's just useless. But that is not true. That was tremendously useful to me because what it said is don't say anything confident you know 
tell people this could be really, really bad and we still don't know. So your comments to the press, be guarded. You know, in fact, there was a use, a lot of use in that. Um, and yet most people... God, I keep doing that. Most people just... Sorry about that. Most people would just laugh and say that was pointless. So, thank you again. That was fantastic. Um, I would like to thank you. It was a really excellent and thought-provoking talk. Um, and I have a question for you, which is, how do we encourage the update of this idea of just enough decisive information um, and science in general amongst senior managers when they're not likely to have sophisticated statistical or scientific backgrounds. Thank you very much. Right, thank you very much. And now we have our second respondent, Robert Rossner. He's a theoretical physicist on the faculty of the University of Chicago since 1987, where he's the William E. Rather Distinguished Service Professor in many departments there. Uh, He's served in a number of positions, including the laboratory director at Argonne National Laboratory, and I think Lenny knew him there, in fact, and and many others. Most of his work's been related to fluid dynamics and plasma physics, as well as applied mathematics and computational physics, But uh, within the past few years, he's been increasingly involved in public policy issues. So I asked Robert to come up and tell us too. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and it was a pleasure to listen to you, Lenny. Um, So I'll I'll save my question to the end. Uh, But I thought um, I'd uh, give the audience a bit of an insight into how I came to actually uh, deal with these kinds of questions. So um, the United States um, participated in the negotiations of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. And uh, Lenny, in fact, alluded to the secession of testing in the uh, early 90s. Uh, The uh, U.S. Senate never ratified the treaty. Uh, It was signed by the U.S., but it was not ratified. But nevertheless, both uh, Democratic and Republican presidents, until the present one, we'll find out about that shortly, I hope, Um, actually uh, behaved as if the Senate had, in fact, ratified the treaty. In other words, testing was, in fact, stopped. Um, Now, uh, the question, uh, the obvious question is, uh, why uh, did the Defense Department, for example, or for that matter, the Republicans in the Senate and and the the House of Representatives, actually go along? And uh, the answer was uh, that um, uh, at that time, there was a promise made that the United States would, uh, the Department of Energy, which is actually responsible for dealing with the weapons, um, that they would uh, institute a stockpile stewardship program, which is based on the use of advanced computing to basically model uh, the weapons. And as you can imagine, there's a great deal of doubt whether this could be done. And um, so in response to that, the Department of Energy uh, announced a competition uh, for the academic community. Uh, It was called the um, Academic Alliance Program of the Science-Based Stockpile Stewardship Program. And uh, there were 50 proposals submitted. And the ground rules were you have to propose to solve a problem that was inherently sufficiently difficult 
that you had to use computers and a problem for which there's a dearth of data to calibrate the, compu uh, the computations. Uh, so um, uh, my group at, uh, at the University of Chicago uh, did propose. We uh, won. We're one of five centers that succeeded in uh, getting the money. Just to give you a feeling for the different scales, I'll mention how much money was actually at the table. Um, and our proposal was that we were going to look at uh, type 1A supernovae. Type 1A supernovae are the thermonuclear supernovae. Uh, they're white dwarfs that go bang uh, in the sky. And they're particularly interesting to astronomers because they're part of the distance ladder for folks interested in knowing how big the universe is and how old the universe is. They're a crucial part of that story because they're thought to be standard candles. And from the astrophysics point of view, the physics point of view, the question is why are they standard candles that require to build a model, predictive model, for these explosions? And as you imagine, that we were not in a position to carry out experiments in this field. So, um, uh, so off we went. And uh, uh, this is something that Brian uh, alluded to. Uh, it's all well and good to be an academic uh, applied mathematician and theoretical physicist, but at some point you meet the real world. And um, you have to have a shock of, uh, of what is actually demanded of you. And in particular, the consequences of getting wrong are rather severe. So I'm of the mind, for example, that I believe that we should not resume testing in the United States. And so I had a lot uh, going from my personal perspective in trying to demonstrate that you could, in fact, do these simulations in a sensible way. So um, uh, in... Um, uh, along the way, I uh, also ended up being laboratory director at Argonne National Laboratory. It's, it was the original nuclear lab in the United States. <clears throat> and uh, I ended up in 2009 as part of the process called the certification process. So what happens is that uh, the two design laboratories, Los Alamos and Livermore, the laboratory directors, assemble a case to be presented to the uh, Secretary of Energy that says, yea, verily, we know that the stockpile is secure and will work. Exactly the way that Lenny described it. That is, if an accident happens, the bombs don't explode, and if you push the button, the bombs will go off. So um, I, um, I participated in the certification process, and it was very revealing, because um, the physicists that were involved in doing the modeling, they're folks not all that different from me, and the folks I work with just happened to be working on particularly unusual kinds of devices. Um, and certainly the, from the point of view of the, the fluid dynamics and the uh, in material science, not really all that different from what we do in open science, except, of course, certain things, like, for example, material properties are kept uh, under guard. So here was a very revealing moment. The Secretary of Energy at that time, a fellow named Sam Bodman, those of you in the financial business might have heard of him, he used to be the CEO of Fidelity, which is an investment house in the United States. Uh, he had, uh, once he retired as CEO, he became uh, uh, Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, and then in the second Bush term, Bush the Younger, uh, he became Secretary of Energy. Don't ask how that happened. Okay. Uh, he certainly was not versed in anything having to do with the, with the science. 
but he knew numbers. And so he asked a very sensible question, which is he was quite certain that at the time, 2009, that the simulation codes were really not able to predict exactly how these weapons would perform. He understood that. But here were the laboratory directors telling him, yea, verily, they work. And he wanted to know, how do you know this? And rather than giving error bars of the kinds uh, that Lenny uh, showed us uh, in his talk, the answer was expert judgment. What did that mean? Well, there are still folks at the labs who had taken weapons from the stockpile, would bring them to the Nevada test site. You saw a map of the, the place. And they would bury the bombs and push the button. And then they'd answer the question, if I, if I withdraw one of these weapons at random from the stockpile, does it work or not? And you'd even be able to get performance data. Did it have the yield that you expected to have? If it was a bomb that had selectable yield, could you change the yield selector? Would you get the right answer? So that's a sobering uh, uh, thought, because you now ask, what does it mean to quantify expert judgment? So all of you actually are used to doing this. I think most of you go to doctors. And I think it's also true that medicine is still, in part, an art. And you have to ask yourself, why do you go to a doctor if you know that the doctor is fallible and when the doctor gives you advice, often the doctor may not be able to quantify his advice to you. Nevertheless, you listen to the person. And why is that? And I think the answer is, the doctor knows more than you do. And this is a perfect example of what happened in the weapons world. Bodman basically surrendered his ability to make a judgment to folks that he thought knew better. So now you have to ask yourself in kinds of things that uh, Lenny talked about, for example, climate, is the same thing really true? That all, you, know, you see these codes, you saw the examples that he showed of two different kinds of climate codes, European and the uh, American uh, codes, that made rather different predictions about the range of influence of a particular hurricane. They're solving the same physics problem. I think they're solving the neighbor-stokes equation. I would say that much of the internals of these codes must be rather similar. They're solving the same partial differential equation, yet they give drastically different answers. And so now you have to ask yourself, so what's missing and who do I trust? And I think there, too, the answer has to be expert judgment. Now, the obvious question, I think, it must be on your mind, is will this ever get fixed? In the case of weapons, um, what happens when the last generation of physicists who participated in the test in Nevada retires, and now you're faced with having folks that you may not regard as experts? Does that mean we're going to go back to testing? So I'll leave you with that thought, but now I have to ask uh, Lenny a question. It has to do with the recipient of the advice. So in the, uh, in the case of, um, of weapons, it's very clear what has to happen. 
the Secretary of Energy has to write a letter together with the Secretary of Defense, who gets a similar kind of story from his folks, and they jointly write a letter to the President saying, yea, verily, the stockpile is secure. Now, in climate, it's rather different. And part of the audience there is an audience that's probably not quite as educated in numbers and perhaps also not quite as wise as Sam Bodman was. The folks, the man and the woman in the street. And I think it is true that if you tell someone that I'm uncertain about something, that they basically think that you don't know what you're talking about. In other words, the word uncertainty is not something that as a physicist or as an applied mathematician or a statistician, you think of it as a quantitative measure, something that you quantify, basically says you don't know what you're talking about. So the, the question I have to you is, in the United States, certainly this is a huge impediment because the right definitely uses exactly that identification of ignorance and uncertainty as a way of battling the notion of climate change. And my question to you is, how do you combat that? Thank you. I've asked both the respondents to come up here as well as Lenny, and it's time to uh, deal with some questions here. Um, Lenny, do you have a stock already asked that you would like to respond to? Uh, Sorry, 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 do I have a... Well, you, you were getting them online. I do. I, in fact, I had, there is one online. Uh, could I respond to okay. their yep. question? Oh, That's absolutely. A, I mean, just briefly. I mean, so thank you both, all three of you. Uh, I've had more time to think about Trevor's question, so I'll start with that one. I, I think there's a, there's a real difficulty, a challenge, in that what a lot of people ask for, and, and, or maybe I'm not sure about ask for, but certainly what a lot of academics want to deliver is sort of a shrink-wrapped probability models of everything, which I only have to do once, and then commercially or just personally, you know, I'm, I'm going for a Newton's Laws kind of solution, which can then be shrink-wrapped and distributed in anybody making any decision about this kind of thing. And probabilities give us that, if we could get them. And it's really hard to lower the bar Right? It's it, it just, you know, it, it, when we're doing mathematics, we can get that. But to lower the bar and, and sort of look, what we really need are relevant insights on a much smaller scale for very particular questions and outcomes. And as an academic, that means I have to learn more about jellyfish than I want to know. Right? So then, how do, you, how do you actually advance the uptake of this? I, I think somehow we need to show the utility of taking that approach. And for many things, I think for the jellyfish in the nuclear power station, I think for weather-related efficiencies of combined cycle gas turbine plants, right, things that, they, that I know more about than I ever expected to learn, we can actually show, but we end up showing this at a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, and, and I believe the book here, which is not mine, the UK Success Stories in Industrial Mathematics, it's an attempt to, to pull together a number of those stories to show different ways of moving forward, which aren't always... You know, one PDF to rule them all. 
then you also made this comment that the decision, yeah, the decision's going to be made anyway. And, and, and it matches with Bob's, you know, so at some point we have to meet the world. I think part of the problem is a lot of, a lot of us never meet the world. And if you actually have a feeling for risk, it's not just an abstract quantity, it's not just mathematical. I mean, you can go through a year giving briefings, presumably in meteorology, certainly on market conditions and what's going to happen today. But, but the way you give that information really changes if somebody suddenly says, here is the phone, you have to either buy or sell 100,000 barrels of Brent sweet crude, I'm going to push the speed dial button. <laughs> and this, you always have to say buy or sell. Suddenly that, the feeling that you're actually making a real decision that's a huge change, but, but certainly many mathematicians, applied mathematicians, don't. I think we really divide into people who've gone out and done things and people who, 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 who really stayed in, in the mathematical side. Uh, and again, that's the, 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 recipient, the recipient to the advice. And so then the last one to Bob's question uh, of, of ignor distinguishing ignorance and uncertainty. Again, I, I think in general that's very, very hard. I think we, we're all, especially when you move into climate or things that don't happen very much or maybe never happen, unless we're really afraid of them, there's a tendency really to put them off. Not just climate, but if you any long, anything that, you know, the impact nuclear, nuclear waste, things that are going to last more than a government or two. We were just very bad at handling that kind of decision, even when we have information about it. And trying to get rid of the word uncertainty. I mean, I actually tried to give talks without using the word so I could actually say what I mean in other ways. Uh, but, it, but really conveying that what the information we do have is of value. And, and the only way to do that, I think, is to demonstrate it. And that's probably also the way to get the older people. You know, the, the, the senior people are probably never, they, I don't believe they are usually, I don't know the insurance industry well enough, but presumably they aren't experts in everything. But, but they know the people to pick. Um, and this actually had one more. This actually runs into the, one of the questions on uh, the net, which was, surprises are rare by nature. How can we judge if there's enough relevant data to meaningfully forecast such events? So this is a great question. Uh, the answer is, I think, very easy. It's we can't. Right? If, if I'm worried about a 1 in 10,000 event, and I'm not doing high-speed trading, right? And this is sort of, I'm talking about a year or something. I'm, I'm probably never going to see such an event. I'm never going to have the evidence. I, this is again, I don't believe we're going to be able to estimate the probabilities because we would never have the data. We would have to believe, we'd have to be extraordinarily, certain quantum mechanical, I mean, actually, I believe there are a few cases we could, but nothing very interesting. And what we can do, though, is we can actually get confidence when we, see, when we, when we issue alerts that something extremely rare might be happening, and these are the things that would have to happen for it to occur. And then we watch, and sometimes those sorts of things are happening. You know, we, we never get the one in 10,000, but we start seeing the one in 20s and one in 100s really pretty early. And that builds up, you know, I, I don't think we should have confidence we can see the one in 10,000, but at least it gives us an idea that we can actually see the unusual things coming forward, and we'll never know I mean, we'll know if it's more or less than 1 in 200, maybe. But we, we're not going to have a really precise. And that's why I always like the insurance question. Because I, th I always saw the 1 in 200 probability threshold where you have to reserve capital if it's more than that. 
I mean, I always just saw it as a talking point, and I think we would really benefit from it in climate. If we, if we just said, we're not really trying to get this probability, but if it's one in 10, we know what to do. And if it's one in a billion, we know what to do. But we don't, you know, if, if we need to talk about it a lot if it's a number like one in 100 or one in 200. Okay, thank you. And perhaps I can just join in the climate one. I can't resist. But uh, and one of the approaches is to say, well, simple, basic physics. You make a very simple model. You don't need all those very complicated models. Basic physics gives you this idea of the warming of the planet. Mm-hmm. Now, we add more complexity, and we don't actually change the answer. So um, the more complexity, more complexity, the answer's still roughly the same. So that would be an... A, another way of approaching this problem, which I think you don't rely on that incredibly complex model. It actually tells you you've still got a problem, and that problem is there. So I think that's true and important, and actually something you said once some time ago, not that long ago, but I mean, it's hard for people to understand the different pieces of a problem that can be solved. So there's a real sense in which the thermodynamics of climate is arguably solved. We, we know very basic things that haven't changed in 30 years, and it, it puts a lot of other stuff at extraordinarily high risk, almost certainly, right? As, as good as it gets physics. Um, but there are details about the circulation. Absolutely. The details of what will happen where. And if you ask what's going to happen in the UK in 2050, I don't know. Right. <laughs> and somehow we have, it has to be okay to say that, but... If, but we, there, there, there are going to be huge impacts. We don't know the details about what's going to happen in the UK or a smaller area, but we know that the, the general impacts will be positive or negative, and you decide. Right? And, and that's in, in almost all walks of life, all questions where you have to make a decision that's going to bite you tomorrow, that's enough. Anyway, I think we've had enough talking from here now. I think it must be your turn now to ask some questions. Please don't give a speech. Please ask a question. And um, could you um, wait for the microphone, please? And um, if you're happy to identify yourself, please do. That would be good. So there's a gentleman back there. And I've been asked to repeat the question to make sure that it's um, online. They Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yep. Thank you. Uh, I'm uh, Robin Hanna, NSE alumnus. Um, I've uh, come across a concept some years ago, the late professor, or living Professor Roger Penrose, whom you probably know, the very valuable mathematical prediction of random events. As a man who had a long discussion about him on that concept, I wonder that might sound relevant to this wonderful talk. The other thing is, um, you didn't mention whether that's useful still in terms of the theory of games, and you know, John Neumann's uh, game theory. So there's two questions there, if you just comment on both. Okay, so mathematical prediction of random events and game theory, are they relevant? The prediction of random events? Mathematical prediction of random events, Roger Penrose, I think. Yes. So, I mean, there's there's an extent to which, you know, all events are to some extent random. I mean, I think there's some events where, where we can actually provide distributional information, the likelihood of things that are important to you uh, or to whoever's actually consuming the, the, the forecast, where we can get quite a lot of information. So being random is not a non-starter. In some sense, being random can make things a lot easier. The, my exception in physics of the things we can do for 1 in 200 events or 1 in 10,000 are exactly the random quantum mechanical sorts of events where 
it's sort of remarkable that the accuracy with which we can make those comments. But we're not saying that the prediction isn't something that's going to happen. It's a, it's, it's a prediction of how often something's going to happen or how much you, would, you could actually wager against it happening and, and survive. How about game theory? Do you want to talk about that at all? About game theory. Game theory. Game theory. Game theory. Uh, no, no. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I, find, I, find a, I find a lot of interesting playing in game theory, but it's a bit like, this, like technical decision support. I've, I've, I went through about 24 decision-making under uncertainty kinds of books, and almost all of them but one assumed you had a good probability distribution by the end of chapter one. And the other one did in the middle of chapter two. And, and, and I agree, when, you know, when, once you have a good probability, I.J. Good used to, used to say there, there were just these tautological probabilities, like how, you know, how many, if you flip a fair coin, how many, and you're, it's done. But once you set a fair coin, it's finished. Right? There's just a math problem. But in the real world, I find very often the structures of the game theoretic approach they, they can give you insight into how systems work and people respond. Uh, but, but quantitatively, I, I, I haven't found, I, in the problems I've looked at, they haven't helped me very much. Let me say, if either of you want to come in, please just let me know. So there's a, a lady there to ask a question. Does, does knowing that you're going to use uh, acceptability targets, as you showed in the weather example, does knowing that you're going to use that approach, does that affect how you formulate the model you're going to use? Can you, you know, yeah. Sorry, can you sum like that? So the, the question is, does, does the sort of targets you're looking at actually affect the way you formulate the model when you're building? This is an excellent question. Uh, because there's a real sense in which I, I don't think when we're trying to model something we, we cheat or, or we have some deep personal bias of building the model in a certain way to get a certain answer. But we certainly do approach the problem in a way that very much depends on, on how we got to where we are. And so if you, look at, at, if you look at the large models of the Earth system, they started out as atmospheric models. I mean, you might, and, and the, the way those models have evolved, that, that path certainly has had a huge impact on what we can and can't do with them. And whether, if we were to start over, uh, we might actually formulate the models in a much simpler way and try to just, try to just get out 10 years in, in distributional sense instead of these goals of the period of making it 100 years that, that then formulate the models, they have to be able to run fast enough. And I think that does have an effect, as well as the choices, what data you have. What can you actually verify, evaluate against? Not verify. Uh, this, you, know, you, you, tend, you tend to formulate the problems you think you can solve. Uh, and then that changes the way the, the pathway that the model development over generations takes. Robert, did you want Yes, actually, I thought that your question actually is particularly interesting because it relates to something that Brian mentioned earlier, which has to do with the difference between extremely simple models and the fact that you can basically rely on them to get the general sense of how things work, and then the interpretation of much more complicated models. So one of the really confounding things about climate modeling is that most folks would love to know, well, what's the weather going to be like here in 2050? Not someone else, but here. And of course, that's in part 
why uh, modelers are driven to higher and higher spatial resolution in their models. And now you could ask, you step back and ask, from the point of view of the science, does it actually make sense to go to higher and higher resolution? For example, is the data actually uh, that's used to calibrate these models, does it actually exist to allow calibration of higher and higher resolution models? The answer basically is no. So, but nevertheless, people are going, models are going to higher and higher resolution. So there's an example of where the, the way models are driven are from, a demand, from the demand side into directions that actually don't make much scientific sense. So the kinds of issues that, that Lenny talked about, where you, where you wonder whether, you know, what are, what are we actually predicting here, they can really come into question at that point. And of course, if you're looking at climate change, you do want to then see the resilience of your infrastructure, etc. But one approach has been to, for the, for the uh, next, uh, the defense of London, how much is the sea level, what's the upper bound of that sea level that we might have to cope with the next Thames barrier, which is a sort of approach that I think you're suggesting we should have, where you have a very specific question, can you bound it? And two meters has been decided as no, a so I, I level. I agree, and I think and the barrier is actually a perfect example of where you have a very specific question, and you have, you have a very clear, good mm. ways of building in a way that gives you the insurance to build more later. Mm, right. uh, yes. I, I would just touch on, on Bob's reply, that it's not just resolution. It's sometimes the, the, the way we've incentivized model building we realize we need some effect in order to get out 100 years, and the current one, I think, is termites. Right? And we realize that these various things that could have a giant impact on, on weather and climate, uh, well, our model can't be perfect unless we put them in. And we end up including things. But there's a sense in which unless we can get the weather with high enough fidelity to drive a perfect termite model, and, you know, it doesn't really make sense to put termites. It's hard to just, I know of no justification for including more and more things just to say we've included them. We need, we, we need to actually be able to say, my model is producing the drivers. We have to be tough on termites and tough on the causes of termites. Right? We, we need to be able to get the drivers of these things right. Or we need to go back to these simpler models and, and we get this giant divide between the sort of thermodynamic general where we're not ignorant at all, and, 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 and the circulation. I think Trevor had a... Yes. Yeah, I, was, I was just wanting to say, related to this question, it's, it's the... We, you were talking about, you know, thinking about how you're going to view models in the way you design them. The, the next thing is about using models beyond their original aim. Yes. And, in fact, you know, catastrophe models um, in the insurance industry are a great example of that, where they are um, tremendous. I mean, you know, when Hurricane Andrew hit, the models said this is going to be $16 billion. All the underwriters said, no, it won't. It'll be about three or four because that's all it's ever been. And the model was much closer to reality. It was about $20 billion than, than they were. And in fact, that was the turning point. That's why we use catastrophe models now because that one moment defined how useful they are. But now what people do is they'll run it, they'll, 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 they'll use it to say, oh, the models are rubbish. So you have Katrina and they'll say, well, Katrina costs $60 billion, And when I put the you know, the, the wind field into the model, I don't get 60 billion, I get, you know, 53. So the models are rubbish. And it's, you know, and it's, 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 it's just completely unfair, but it's, it's down to that kind of lack of understanding of what models 
are able to do and what they can't and what it's reasonable to ask of them and what it isn't. So it's sort of a very good question. Yes. Lenny, do you have some? I do, actually. There, there, there are several. I can't actually, I haven't read them all, but let me just note two of them that have been voted up. Uh, one of them is, does an over-reliance on statistical probabilistic modeling come with the sacrifice of progress in deeper understanding of the causal mechanisms behind systems? Mm-hmm. And the second one is, models simplify reality. We sometimes need simplicity to trigger action. Is the cost of simplification worth the value of action? And how would we know? Wow. Okay. Right, so you have answers. <laughs> uh, well, I was actually hoping to pass them off, but I'll actually go for, the, I'll, I'll go for the, um, the first one, about an over-reliance on statistical... Does it mean that we, we sacrifice progress in a deeper understanding? And, and I think the answer is sometimes. I mean, I, one of the reasons that I went back more deeply into physics as a graduate student was I realized there was an analytic solution for a subroutine and a large model. <laughs> right? That we could have actually done that problem and sped everything up very quickly, but the modeling program was sort of, we didn't need to, we had a subroutine that did that. Uh, and that's the, that's the bad side. There's a sense in which we don't pay as much attention to the details that we could actually understand. But on the other side, I think there are things that are just really, really complicated. Not complex in some nice supernova, maybe. And, and computer modeling, and, and so, so the two straight. One is that the, the computational models extend tremendously our ability to see what the mathematics we can think of actually implies about the world. And we couldn't do that without that kind of approach. The second one is very often there are uncertainties, and, and by, by using these probabilistic methods, either in the dynamics or in the initial conditions, by using these probabilistic methods, we actually manage to trace those forward into the future. And that, that's something we couldn't do without them. So it's, it's not clear we can develop that same kind of, and maybe that's part of the problem, we, that we can develop the same kind of deep understanding that I think I have about Newton's laws and, and relativity. Uh, Maybe that just that won't work for supernova. This is sort of hard to say. I mean, but we could, I think we haven't gotten to the point where we've developed a parallel way of, of understanding those complex systems, and that would be interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, so uh, I'd like to add something to that question because um, some of the things that are included in a client models are statistical in nature. Uh, some are not statistical. They are basically, the way uh, uh, you might want to think about, about them, they are models within the models that are um, uh, basically um, a way of getting around the fact that some of the physics is not sufficiently well understood to be able to actually nail the process from first principles. For example, in climate codes, clouds. We do not have a first principles understanding for exactly how clouds work. So the way that's done is to uh, adopt the procedures of engineers who, um, you know, we, they build airplanes, they design airplanes, we fly them. Uh, they build bridges, we go over them. So they have procedures for how to think about building models for things that are not understood from first principles, calibrating those models. So these models have knobs, they're adjusted, they're calibrated. 
And in the case of a bridge or an airplane, you can test the calibration. In the case of climate, how sure are we that a calibrated cloud model that's based on data for the last, say, 50 years will work in the next 50 years? That's an excellent question. And I don't know whether Lenny can answer that. That is the essence of why it is that putting error bars, other than doing these ensembles, is actually foolish for these climate models. That's the reason if you look at the fifth assessment, the physics, the first volume, which is the physics volume, very, they were very careful never to talk about uncertainties. And the reason is simply you can't construct them. No, I just say that, I mean, it's the same divide as, as the question that the American Statistical Association sells a T-shirt at their annual conference which says, friends don't let friends extrapolate. Yes. <laughs> and the, the problem is that that cuts off a huge amount of the physical world of interest, and statisticians can never go there, which is a pity. Right? But, but we don't have a good way of this kind of extrapolation. Of, of, and maybe one of the ways you mentioned earlier, that you know, we, we have models solving the same equations that are doing different things. Uh, but, you know, if we, I once proposed that we take six different climate centers and put them in space stations and not let them talk to each other, but give them all the same data. Would their models converge at the rate that our models are converging, where they swap people and information and code? Or would their models actually diverge? If, if somehow we could build independent models and they, they came together, the things that they come together on, I would have more confidence in than the things where they spread apart. But I can't really say why. Like, well, I can, I can defend them more, but whether or not I'd have, you know. But, but on the other hand, it's the best insight we have. Right. Are there any more questions, Lenny, that you're eager to ask? Otherwise, I think we've... No, I, I think we're okay. Uh, I think we, uh, we have reached 8 o'clock, and I, I think we should uh, bring proceedings to a close now, but not without thanking both uh, Trevor and Robert, but then, most of all, Lenny for an excellent talk. <laughs>